If you've ever walked Richmond Street West in Toronto, you probably noticed a large painted sign on the side of a brown brick building. Gilbert Bros Limited, Wholesale Woolens and Dress Goods. It's hard to miss. It's even received a paint job recently, so the old-timey exclamation really pops. Heritage Toronto's Chris Bateman wrote in the Globe and Mail, the Gilbert brothers came from Austria and went into the textile business here in the early 1900s. They built the very building the ad still adorns. The sign is what's known as a ghost sign, remnants of an age before mass media, a way to get the word out and hawk your wares in industrial Toronto, in an age where the big smoke didn't refer to the choking fumes of traffic congestion, but to multiple factories pumping out every conceivable product a young and growing city might need. Not much of that Toronto still exists, until you peel back the layers a bit. As with the Gelber Bros sign, which Bateman says was preserved all these years, because until 2007, it was covered up by a beer ad. A hundred-year-old bit of history, hidden behind a thin layer of vinyl, waiting to resurface. So let's go ahead and peel back these layers. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from William Allen's former backyard, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Spacing has just released a brand new book called Package Toronto, all about the products, advertisements, and design identity of the city from the mid-1800s to the Second World War. So, inspired by the book, we're talking Toronto history and graphic design. We talked to Wayne Reeves, the recently retired chief curator of Toronto History Museums and co-author of Package Toronto. And we talked to Todd Falkowski, design thinker and brand consultant, about Toronto and Canada's design history. But first, spacing publisher and creative director Matthew Blackett, who co-authored Package Toronto, tells us a little bit about the world and the artifacts that inspired it. Stand by. Seeds of inspiration for Package Toronto came almost a decade ago to me when I was deep into the production of Spacing's first book, 50 Objects to Define Toronto. The late local historian Stephen Otto had introduced me to the curators at the City of Toronto's museum collection, who in turn gave me access to photograph items in the city's storage facility. For me, being inside a museum's warehouse is both exhilarating and a little bit creepy. The cavernous space is filled with things used by people who passed away a long, long time ago. There are well-worn dresses and hats and military uniforms. There are antique baby carriages and obsolete tools and prescription pillboxes. And then there are the regular household items that people used in their everyday lives. (laughs) 
I was smitten by the charming boxes, bottles, and cans that were adorned with beautiful hand lettering, bold vintage typefaces, or paragraph-long explanations of what the product could help you with. The minimal use of color looks like a restrained design style to the modern eye, but in fact is an example of the limited printing capabilities at the time. These products are from the age of factory smokestacks, mass manufacturing, lithographed tin canisters, and paper boxes. You won't find any barcodes, nutritional panels, or anything made of plastic. When photographing the items for Package Toronto, I formed a bit of a relationship with two products in particular. One was Dr. Caldwell's laxative syrup pepsin, but not for reasons that just popped into your head. During the studio session, the dark brown syrup from the bottle leaked onto my hands unknowingly, and eventually ending up in my hair and onto my camera. It took two days of repeated washing to get the putrid smell of this hundred-year-old medicine off of my body. And the other object was a Canada Strait tobacco tin. While I was positioning it for a shoot, Wayne Reeves, the chief curator of the city's museum collection, popped by and told me that that tin had actually been manufactured at 401 Richmond Street West, which is the exact same building that Spacing and our retail store call home. And to add to that, on an even more personal note, the building also happens to be the place where my grandfather, Raymond Blackett, worked as a salesman for Continental Can in the 1950s and 60s. I'm a graphic designer and I take a lot of inspiration from Canada's post-Second World War era of design. But when I went to research Canada's pre- and interwar eras, there was very little to be found. I'm happy that this book uncovers objects often hidden within the city's vast collection of items, but I'm also pleased that this book does its small part in filling the gaps in our local and national design history. From Brian Donnelly's essay on the evolution of printing techniques to Bonnie Zabaletny's deep dive into the packaging of Eden's products, Package Toronto is a tribute to three-dimensional graphic design viewed through the lens of a single city as it became Canada's commercial and industrial powerhouse. Now, until recently, Wayne Reeves was the chief curator for Toronto History Museums. Besides being one of the authors of Package Toronto, Wayne was in charge of the special collection of artifacts that inspired the book. We asked him about those artifacts and the story they tell about early industrial Toronto. I wanted to congratulate you on your recent retirement uh, after over a decade, I think, uh, as uh, chief curator of Toronto History Museums. Yeah. 11 plus years, I guess. 
just under 29 years with uh, with Metro and then the City of Toronto. So yeah, no, it, could, uh, yeah it, it was certainly a great run and um, doing some projects that involved deep dives into the artifacts in our collection was always a lot of fun, but uh, putting it all together in a single book was a real bonus. Um, can you tell me, uh, for myself and for listeners, uh, what what is the job of the chief curator? You know, what, what's that like? So, chief curator for City of Toronto Museums and Heritage Services. We now brand ourselves as Toronto History Museums. And essentially, uh, the chief curator's job is to oversee some of the, the, the key uh, civic collections. So, 150,000 artifacts, 1.1 million archaeological specimens, lots of bits and pieces, quite frankly, there. Over 3,000 artworks. Um, and so that's in addition to the the public art collection and uh, the archival materials, which are managed by other units within the city. So, you know, ostensibly a collections manager, but also in charge of getting the major exhibits that come into the, the, the city's museums. There are 10 of them spread right across Toronto and uh, overseeing the exhibit program is certainly another uh, key aspect of the, of the chief curator's role. Of these 10 museums, uh, are they kind of, um, do you have a museum for certain eras or neighborhoods or how are they delineated? I view them very much um, uh, real social history, grassroots orientation. The sites have a lot of uh, variability and a lot of ability to tell quite diverse stories about Toronto's history. In terms of the collection that we see in Package Toronto, uh, I understand it's a 150,000 item collection. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that collection? And uh, I understand that uh, not everyone gets to see the items in this collection. Sure, 150,000 objects and probably no more than 10% of them are on display at any one time at our 10 historic site museums. And, you know, and again, we we don't have a, a singular museum of Toronto, but even if we did, uh, we'd only be displaying just a minute fraction uh, of what the city holds. So we have a couple of uh, collections centers, one in Forest Hill, one in Liberty Village, where the bulk of the collection is stored. And, you know, it, it's a, quite a wide-ranging uh, social history collection that, again, is really focused on telling the, the stories of ordinary lives uh, within the city. Um, you know, we don't have crown jewels and King Tut's death mask and, and things like that. But what you really get uh, as a flavor of of some of the collection is an incredible range of packaging that's been assembled over time that uh, talks about Toronto as a place where stuff was physically made and retailed. And some of the the, the greatest commercial entities of the country were based out of Toronto. And, um, you know, Eden's gets... Uh, fair amount of profile and package Toronto mm-hmm. and for good reason it had so many brands under the Eaton's banner and uh, dabbled in everything from medicines to children's toys to chocolates and candies hair products I could go on and on and on and on right. and um, 
we've captured some sense of Toronto as a, as a, as a, as a really key manufacturing hub for English Canada with some materials in the book going back to the 1870s and coming all the way forward to uh, the mid-20th century. I'm interested in how this collection was sort of amassed because, uh, you know, these items in their day were quotidian. You'd, you'd find them everywhere. So were people scouring uh, thrift shops or, you know, donating these to the city, just saying like, hey, I've had this in my attic for years or this is my my great-great-grandfather's. Uh, what, what makes someone... Uh, finally take this sort of everyday manufactured object and say, well, this is a part of history now. Well, you are absolutely right when you talk about donations. Truly the backbone of of the City of Toronto's artifact collection. Um, And again, it's people hanging on to things, thinking that they meant something for their family, perhaps, or that they were, uh, uh, you know, curious items that somehow should be preserved for posterity. You know, with a very tiny budget on the acquisitions front, we've really relied for, uh, I guess, approaching 100 years of of collecting. You know, the the city started with fine art uh, in the 1850s, and then later on, as museums took shape, again, at the community level, people started to offer up things. You know, whether it was sites run by the City of Toronto or Scarborough, Etobicoke, North York, East York. And of course, you can imagine that things that meant a lot to um, families at the personal level uh, were preserved and donated. We have a huge number of christening gowns, for example. And again, it speaks very much to the Anglo-Saxon waspy foundations of the city. Mm-hmm. But then over time, um, we started to see a much more diverse range of materials being offered up. We've relied on some incredible collectors. Morris Norman is one uh, who have donated thousands of objects, have collected with a passion uh, all things Toronto, and then uh, gifted them to the to the city. And that, that has really been part of the real backbone of the city's collection. Do you have a couple of items that stand out for you uh, in this collection as uh, maybe very telling of, of uh, Toronto in that era? Well, you know, I, I was thinking of uh, things that we had collected even during my tenure. We have a uh, 1950s air raid siren that was retrieved from a school before uh, it was slated to to be scrapped and, and you, know, you know, for salvage value. So again, you know, we need to tell the story of the Cold War in Toronto. But um, remember, we did a an exhibit about uh, R.C. Harris, the Commissioner of Works for the City of Toronto from 1912 to 1945. Mm-hmm. And uh, thanks to the kind intervention of John Lawrence, you know, a great supporter of Spacey Magazine and fantastic Toronto journalist with a real historical sense, he was able to put us in touch with descendants of R.C. Harris who in turn donated his uh, cigar lighter and a presentation tray. And so again, uh, you know, it wasn't going to be easy to haul in a 42-inch steel water main to put on display. Mm-hmm. It gave us a little bit of a sense of, of the man himself. And to your mind, what do these items tell us about Toronto between, you know, the mid-19th century and the, the mid-20th century? It, it wasn't uh, the largest city in Canada. It wasn't the capital. 
is this kind of an industrial factory town, uh, probably not, not entirely recognizable to Torontonians today, but, uh, what was Toronto like back then? Well, you know, it, it very quickly moved into second place in the national standings in terms of population. So, you know, it was always the hub of English Canada and whether it was graphic design or, or manufacturing or finance, you know, Toronto was really the English speaking hub of the country. And, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, didn't act as the as the national capital uh, after Confederation, but in every other respect, really made its mark. And people came here, and uh, whether you were attracted as an immigrant or as an investor, it's really remarkable. Um, and again, you can see this through the pages of, of uh, Package Toronto, just the incredible range of factories and enterprises that got their start here in, in Toronto. And, you know, it didn't matter whether you were interested in uh, making liquor or toys or, you know, 101 other ventures, um, you know, food processing, automobile manufacturing, medicine production, creation and production of vaccines. Um, these are all very much uh, tied to Toronto as a, as a making place. Now we really think of ourselves more of a place of services and, uh, you know, uh, much more of a cultural hub and industry is, you know, performed elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, either in the country or overseas. But Toronto was truly a smokestack town for decades. And that's, really how we rose to become an economic powerhouse and some of the packaging associated with the goods that came out of those factories is uh is really nicely um laid out in package toronto uh you mentioned that we're we're not really a manufacturing hub anymore and i'm sure that's the case with a a lot of uh, major former industrial cities but uh can you still sort of see the um the legacy of of that era of toronto in in the toronto of today well, we certainly see it in the built form, although uh, it's so incredibly diminished over the last 50 years or so. I'm thinking of, you know, how little uh, there is left of Massey Harris, the, the farm implements manufacturer, or, or Inglis, which built, you know, marine engines and washing machines and produced munitions during world wars. So, you know, the, 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 the recent attempted demolition of foundries in uh, the, the West Islands. Mm-hmm. Those were all places of heavy industry. Um, so, you know, now we still have some light manufacturing, especially out in the suburban parts of the city. Fairly anonymous, uh, low-rise physical entities that don't have that huge Victorian smokestack aspect that you would have seen with Massey Harris and uh, Gooderman Warts and other uh, businesses like those. But uh, when you look at how some of those sites have been repurposed, and I think of Gooderman Warts now becoming the distillery district, you know, without a doubt, one of the greatest Victorian industrial complexes anywhere in North America. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, a rare case of preservation and reuse. 
but again, it was a time when when booze was king in town, um, and whether it was hard liquor or beer or even winemaking, some of those stories again have made it into the book because uh, you know they were um, all aspects of, of of Toronto's prosperity that really relied on manufacturing. And in terms of the book itself, uh, you know, as an artifact and a, a contribution to the city's lore, uh, what do you hope the impact is? Well, I want people to understand uh, just how fascinating Toronto's history is in terms of being able to read it through objects. We have dozens upon dozens of books that are full of photographs of Toronto's history, you know, going back to the 1850s, the 1860s. Mm-hmm. But um, I think Packaged Toronto truly is the first book that that says, hey, material culture, um, three-dimensional objects are a real fascinating way into the history of Toronto and its people. Well, Wayne, uh, it's been nice to talk to you. I want to thank you for taking the time. Glenn, it was great to talk to you, and uh, I hope everyone gets out and uh, picks up a copy of uh, Packaged Toronto from the Spaces Store. Finally, Todd Falkowski is a brand consultant and publisher of the Canadian Design Resource. In Canada, we spend a good deal of time trying to pin down exactly what our identity really is. So it's no surprise we wrestle with a lot of those same questions when it comes to graphic design in this country. What is the story of design in Canada, especially in those early days before the space-aged enthusiasm of the post-war centennial era? Todd helps break it down. And as a quick listening note, you will notice a slight change in audio quality at the top, for which we apologize. Okay, Todd, I wanted to begin by asking you, uh, when it comes to, you know, talking about Canada's design identity, I think a lot of people think about the sort of images that came out of Expo 67 and that sort of post-war enthusiasm. Does Canada have a, a design identity, in, in your opinion? Yeah, you know, I think it's easy to to go to that time period and 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 pick off the examples you're talking about. I know that it's common to uh, use some of the measuring sticks of Europe and and the United States as kind of a guide on how those decisions, I guess if you can call them, and how national identities formed. You know, Germany lives under like things like uh, a Bauhaus. Italy has things like Memphis. Of course, the states has the Eames and modernism and mid century. So it's it's really. Um, clear on how those systems are are identified and, and kind of how a whole story is driven around that. Generally, Canada fails when those measuring sticks are brought here. You're going to kind of think of like, you know, modernism starts, war has, you know, obviously devastated Europe. This rational thinking leads to a design system largely driven out of Switzerland. So it had a purpose. It wasn't just aesthetic. It didn't just kind of emerge as sort of like a new trend. It really had a philosophy that was driving it. So by the time modernism came to Canada, that had gotten a little bit wobbly. And the Canadians adopted it federally, really, the government, but as a, as a way to solve a kind of a wicked problem, which is you have diversities in Canada, but we have this pressure between English and French. What graphic style can we bring to say, you know, not necessarily pull too much from one side or one from the other? And modernism became that, that tool, that device to... Um, global identity without having to 
borrow from those two camps, be it either English or French. I'm not sure how relevant that is today. Like I, I understand how our brain processes clean modernism, how the design industry loves to kind of live there and kind of uh, feel safe, very safe in there. But I think Canada's identity is richer. And I think that we don't necessarily have a national one, but we have little camps everywhere that have their own. It's like Vancouver has its own look. Um, you know, it's really influenced by First Nations. Saskatchewan and Manitoba have their, really their own aesthetic. Um, Quebec, of course, has its own. The Maritimes and all of East has its kind of own. And, of course, Toronto has its own. Um, so Canada kind of has some freedom there. If the design industry truly said, hey, let's move forward and, and kind of find ways to connect to something kind of legit and authentic, we actually have the right DNA to do it. And I think if we avoid the traps of, like, modernism and stuff that we've imported, we're, we're, we're going to be more able to sort of say, uh, this is what Canada can look like and how can we sort of communicate with the globe on our own terms and how do we join those dialogues might be a time better spent in my mind of looking at like what's actually there as opposed to what we've imported. Right. Um, I like what you said about, uh, you know, maybe it's difficult to talk about a national design identity, but that uh, regional identities did sort of form. And that kind of brings us to the, the to the book, Package Toronto, because here we see sort of a, a lot of design concepts that uh, are pre the Second World War, pre uh, um, the Confederation uh, uh, Centennial. And it, it came very much out of a a town that was not the largest town in Canada, not the capital of Canada, um, but sort of a manufacturing hub, a landing place, a, a sort of crossroads. So I wonder if you can speak to that era of specifically Toronto design and uh, maybe if, if at all, um, its contribution to the sort of broader Canadian uh, design identity? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think it's a little bit tough to answer that in a way because, you know, even today, I think the national design community kind of struggles with Toronto being the center of it. Mm -hmm. So to say this is where it kind of started is problematic, I think, for anybody outside of Toronto. I've always resisted that kind of shame. I'm in Toronto, of course, myself. We look at other countries like France is not scared to have Paris be the cultural center. <laughs> I would even say even in the States, like, I think they're comfortable with New York being a cultural center. Canada seems really uncomfortable putting Toronto as its creative center. All the creative people end up here. I would say 75 to 80% of the creative work is generated here. But there's been this weird like um, relationship that Toronto is somehow calling all the shots and being that. It's such a Canadian phenomenon. <laughs> um I think the work, the work that's in Matt's book is interesting because it's such a hodgepodge of like colonial imported ideas that kind of like modernism in the, in the 60s, 70s went through kind of its own version making. It's really easy to say, Hey, these are kind of the same, uh, crackers we would have seen in London, but they're actually not. They're slightly warped. And I love that kind of like that translation. Like it reminds me of, is, is it the Akaluit or Nunavut um, coat of arms? You see this really traditional canon, like it's like a British you know, identity system, but it's got like a Norwale on it. Like it's so weird. Um, it's so Canadian, but at the same time, it's like, it looks like heraldry. So I think yeah. that's what kind of gets to Matt's book is interesting as a designer. I look back at that and go, there's so many cool foundations there as far as like products going into the marketplace and trying to like communicate what they are and how do they do that as well as the beginnings of like French and English. How does a package contain both? Cause they largely don't. Um, and also it's neat to look back at them cause it kind of like, it's the beginning of branding of how like if something's a medical product it has lots of words on it 
know, like it's like conveying like you need to be kind of smart to get this. It's medical stuff. We we look back and go, it's really neat to see the tools of persuasion and communication that were relevant at that time at that community that mind. Fast forward today, we've gotten to a, a different state of how brands need to communicate and use design to talk to each other. So I, I don't know if the products in Matt's exploration really have been properly presented as a foundation for design in Canada. They really were until Matt's book were kind of invisible. They, no one saw them. They were, they were almost seen as like not design history. And it was re- really easy to write them off as being like, Hey, they all came from somewhere else. So therefore they're not Canadian. And I still think it actually is interesting when all the stuff is important to Canada, just like today. And it goes through this like warpage. Um, I think that might be the takeaway for me is how, when things come here, they actually do go through a translation. And that's actually quite unique and compelling. You guys know, think of like sushi comes to Canada out in Vancouver. And I can't remember that guy, that little sushi joint that was making like sushi pizza in California rolls. Like it came here, but went through a warp. And that's right. like kind of diversity and multicultural. That's kind of, if we really leaned into it, we'd be able to draw back from today to the work that Matt presents and say, Gosh, it would be kind of cool to see how that led to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. Now that hasn't happened. So Matt needs to write a few more books because like those, like his exposed is kind of this little black hole. Um, there's a few more black holes that need to be articulated because Canadian design just didn't, isn't confident or isn't, isn't, doesn't want to kind of look at that stuff and say, Hey, we should be actually kind of interested in this or proud of it or whatever, at least study it. That hasn't occurred. So Matt's work really is, I mean, it's presented in kind of a light, you know, snackable book. But it really is hinting at something that needs to be explored. Like as Canadian designers, we really need to kind of look at that stuff and say it's there and and what does it actually mean? Right, because within the book, uh, something that I found really interesting, just as not not a designer myself, but a, as something that I could recognize easily, is uh, a box, um, you know, some some sort of mechanical oil or something that was from what became the nationally known and, and beloved Canadian Tire. And on that box, it had a lot of the concepts that eventually became the logo that we all know with the little green maple leaf at the top, the downward pointing uh, red triangle. The box had a black triangle. It had a maple leaf. It had a beaver that I guess they get rid of. But right there, that must have, you know, over over the course of 50 something years, turned into a logo that uh, is instantly recognizable um, and probably holds a lot of the principles of, of what we consider modern design. Yeah. My thought kind of on that is, is a little bit more challenged. I wonder if because we feel so, because we, no one's really studied that history. I'm talking about the Canadian design community, Canadian design education. We feel insecure about that. And, and we've brought up these imagery like beavers and hockey sticks and maple syrup. It's become kind of an easy visual language to adopt. We get it, but it hasn't been really like strategic or, or, um, I don't know how Canadians themselves feel about it. Like, you know, I imagine like Canadian Tire has a hard time expanding into the United States. It has a hard time going global. Most Canadian companies do. And that's interesting to think of our identity system as somehow not translating, that those images appear kind of hokey or kitschy. And even the Canadians themselves, I think, aren't attached to them with great vigor. They're not like, oh, great, another beaver. And that's kind of interesting that we we... Because we haven't like invested in that kind of chapter that Matt's illustrating, I wonder if it means we're kind of vulnerable today. It's hard to put DNA into design because we're kind of like embarrassed that our symbols are 
kind of kitschy, but also we haven't invested in them. So they, they remain kind of like Disney-ish. They're not really like, um, money. You know, they're not like, like judged as something worth investing in. I, I think at a design meeting, if you pitched it to a client, Hey, we're going to do a beaver. I think you'd have a hard pitch. <laughs> right. I think of the example is like every company that comes into Canada puts a little maple leaf on their logo. Mm-hmm. The Canadian design pieces are so hammy, um, but we also can't seem to kind of break free of them. Whereas you can kind of think like New York's liberated. It can almost do anything because it has this like belief of modernity and forward moving and, and ambition and the American dream. They have these like larger ideals, whereas ours kind of boil down to these like funny crafty little symbols. So, you know, again, I think it's, we talked about before, but I think that we haven't invested in this stuff in any way. So it remains sort of an unknown. We continue to brand Canadian products with these devices with not really giving it a deeper thought. Um, and you know, Matt's book emerges as kind of like, Hey, all this cool stuff's back there. Have you checked it out? But I think it's a bit of a threat. <laughs> it's kind of like saying this did start someplace and it maybe isn't wholly Canadian. A lot of stuff came from a whole bunch of different places. It needs that curator, that second level of academic to say, you know, this does, there is this line to be drawn and there's stuff to be kind of learned and, and almost use it as a stage to like, Think of what's 2.0 Canada as opposed to like relying on these devices over and over like we do and continue to do. I mean, it, it makes me think, and maybe this is too much of a leap, but uh, maybe uh, because of our sort of long-standing national identity crisis that no matter what the product is branding, in some way it is also branding Canada itself in a way that America has never felt like it had to. Or if, if you're the United Kingdom, you don't feel like you have to brand you know, the country that the product is made in, but is it, is it a leap to say that these products are at once marketing the product itself as well as the place that it comes from its own provenance? Oh yeah, for sure. And that's why I think the stuff in Matt's book is actually so interesting because it was really state of the art at that time. Like they are such time capsules. And it, again, it's still that layer of like, why does that, what does it mean? That's the kind of the missing part is like we haven't really spent time figuring out what that means or, again, what it means for today. Like what steps does that mean for it to take us today? We look at other places I would say have more um, secure or confident design, like creative communities. They can use their foundations in really quite dynamic ways. They're more attached to emotion or or action. We're really still frozen in kind of like Canada's really defined by the weather. So we have a bird. We have a tree, a, a leaf. We haven't gotten into the spiritual meaning of that. Like, what does it mean to have that feeling? And once you've owned that feeling, the one I always debate on the branding side is, I guess, two things. One is, you know, um, why does Canada not just own everything related to winter? I guess, yeah, we definitely make the best winter coats, Canada Goose and others. But, you know, the hockey equipment's all gone everywhere else. Like, Canada doesn't have a hockey brand anymore. You know, why don't we make the best winter car? Like, we kind of own the concept of winter. If you think winter globally, ask anybody, they'll, Canada will probably come in that with Russia would be places you identify with winter. It's interesting that we haven't made these kind of links between creative outputs and like those sort of more emotional states as opposed to like, again, beavers, maple syrup, hockey sticks. So that's kind of interesting to me that we haven't used what spiritual values Canada does actually have. And then convert that into a foundation for a design system or a, a way of doing design. We haven't been really good at that. That doesn't mean it can't happen. I think, you know, again, something like Matt's book coming out at this time is really great. It's just a start. You know, it's like it's one, you know, hidden little piece that was lo- probably kind of a bit lost in the, in the archive. 
um, thankfully found an outlet for it. So yeah, I guess the other example I think about in Canada that's so so interesting is you know I talk I have a lot of American or a handful of American clients and you know the one thing we always end up talking about is how I would say maple syrup is one of our kind of go to like people will say oh you're from Canada did you bring maple syrup and I always giggle on that one because we don't even our things that we think we kind of some own some territories that we should own like name a brand of maple syrup. Like we don't have like a Heinz ketchup of maple syrup. Like there isn't that like yeah. go to thing. It's a commodity, right? We sell it like like we sell lumber. We sell it like a big truck goes down to Vermont and it goes down to New York and they put Dean and DeLuke on the bottle. We haven't been really good at taking what's there and, and adding that layer on it. We we just sort of live in these little tropes. And we've yet to really get academic on again. This is why I was so stoked when Matt reached out to me because I was just like, hey. Dude, you need to write like five more books because this is like you are literally just cracking the top on this. We need to get back in there. And I think the design community needs to really look at like Matt's book and be kind because it's like it really is like an entry point, right? Um, it's not a, it, it's not going to be a textbook in the graphic design 101, but it is that like really lovely teaser of like, look at these things. And, uh, and hopefully someone picks that up and goes, Hey, let's actually start looking at this stuff again and, and figuring some of that stuff out. And that's the show. Good, satisfactory, or money refunded. If you liked this episode, please tell your favorite graphic designer, a snake oil selling Montebank, and a room full of chain smoking ad executives. And pick up your own copy of Package Toronto at the Spacing Store. If you have a moment, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes, as it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at SpacingRadio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, which is open for curbside pickup, or you can visit spacingstore.ca. In the meantime, if you're down on the world, let Bowell make you happy and healthy, alive to all the joys of living. Or, you know, see a real doctor. Cheers. Cheers.